first of all, just, it's, it's remarkable. It's incredible uh, to think of how much God has grown us. How much more of a missional heart I feel like we have. He is truly honing us to make us more like himself, isn't he? 22 families, and, and one of those families in particular is a family that my lot family, uh, trying to see how many times I can say family there, uh, is, a, is, a, is a family that um, our group uh, poured into. And the story goes like this. It's a, it's a family, um, and the, the 10-year-old has leukemia. And um, they were all sleeping on the floor, okay? Uh, it's a very desperate situation. And our crew went in, and we brought some beds and some food. And as I watched our crew come back in my house, and me and the, the other dads in our family, we were baking cookies with our girls, and then we took them to the neighbors. Um, as we watched this crew who had been serving this family come back in, their faces alone humbled me. The story alone humbled me. These are folks that had seen a desperate situation and in it had been reminded how great God is, how great the call is on our life. And so I sat there on my living room couch, excited and at the same time deeply humbled by the thing that he has called this church to be a part of. It's something great. It's something we can't do on our own. And in doing so, we will see desperate situations and continue to see how God can provide in desperate situations just like he's done for you. All of you. All of us. And so tonight, I, I want to begin where we left off last week. By praying this prayer together. By asking right now as we dig into, and, and listen to this, that there are certain times when we come to passages and you, my heart just is instantly engaged and and. And just excited. And tonight's one of those words. It's one of those passages. So I'm going to pray for us that God would humble us and then we're going to dig in. Sound good? God, I pray that in your great mercy that you would just make less of us now. That you would remind us of our unworthiness, of our desperate need of you. God, whatever it is for whatever person in here, would you just... Would you just knock us down at our knees? And God, give us a tremendous, desperate desire for your word. In your holy and awesome name, amen. So uh, three weeks ago, when uh, President Obama was here, we studied uh, Peter's call to submit to every human institution. We recognize that this is a very difficult thing, especially in the culture and the times of which we are currently present. Two weeks ago, or last week rather, uh, we studied uh, Peter's continuing uh, call for a humble life in that servants are, are to submit to the master. And the overall observation we made is that Peter isn't talking about uh, submitting to the government or a servant submitting to the master. Rather, he's talking about how gospel rhythm life is fleshed out. And he gives some specifics. Here's what it looks like. Even though it's culturally crazy, you're going to submit to the government. Even though it seems almost silly to submit to a master even when they do wrong to you, that's what you are going to be because you are a child of God. So we focused last week on the teachings of Jesus. But tonight, the person of Christ becomes our example. So if you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 21. If you don't have a Bible, there's one right in front of you, and we'd love for you to follow along with us. 
First Peter chapter 2, verse 21, uh, says this. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Don't you love this already? I'm already jacked. We move from the teachings of Christ to the very person of Jesus. All five of these verses, the person of Christ becomes our example. But we have to begin verse 21 with this first phrase. For to this you have been called. Let's start with a calling. Uh, I grew up on a, a farm. Uh, well, let me, take, let me uh, say that again. Uh, my grandfather, which I've talked about many times, uh, farmed the second largest jalapeno farm in the nation. I've talked about it many times. And so I grew up, you know, playing hide-and-go-seek in the farm. It was a big farm. Uh, they, they farmed uh, watermelons and, and corn and all kinds of cool stuff. I'm not claiming to be a farmer, but that's where I grew up. And I, I will never forget the day, never forget the day when my grandpa came to me. I was six or seven, and he said, hey, Mark, do, do you want to help him pick corn today? And I mean, I, like I had been just yearning for this moment where I could go out in the field and pick corn. You know what I'm saying? And not just that, but when my grandpa had asked me to do it, it was like the, the coolest purpose ever. How, how many of you guys grew up on a farm? All right. City folk, right? Yeah. There's something so beautiful about it. But listen, when my grandpa said, are you ready to go and pick corn? It was like this, I had purpose I had, I, like, it, it, it was so, um, it just enveloped me, and so I went out, and um, I acted like I picked corn, you know what I'm saying? Like, I kind of walked through the, I don't even know what, how to do it, really, you know? But it, he saw that it would give me great purpose to simply call me to something. So Jesus is on a beach, and these men are fishing, and he comes up to them, and he says, uh, hey, boys, um, tough day, huh, at the office? Yeah, we're not catching much fish. It's, it's been a rough one. And then Jesus says, uh, why don't you go ahead and throw those nets to the other side of the boat and we'll see what happens. And, and, and some are doubting. And, and, and then they do. And you all know the story. The, the nets just fill with fish. And then Jesus tells them this. He says, come on men. You're going to from now on catch men. And he says, come and follow me. Could you imagine hearing those words from the mouth of the Savior? Come follow me me. Could you imagine the, the purpose? So Peter's holding on to the net, his livelihood, all that he knows. And the Savior comes by and says, drop all that you know and follow me. This Greek word called is kaleo. And it means to call to something with a loud voice, with tremendous purpose. For to this you have been called with great purpose, with great mission, and what is it? Well, in verse 19 and 20, the whole premise was suffering unjustly. You guys remember from last week? The whole concept was if you, let's say, murder someone, and then you receive a punishment, that is just suffering. You deserve it, okay? Unjust suffering is when you do nothing wrong when you don't deserve anything, and then you suffer anyway. That's what Peter's call was. As a Christian, you humble yourself under authority, and that will in turn cause you to suffer unjustly. Peter says, that's your purpose. He says, that's your call. For me as a seven-year-old boy, that empowered me. 
For the disciples, that purpose empowered them. But we connect that with unjust suffering, and we're like, that sounds like a curse. For to this you have been called, to suffer unjustly. Like, where's the blessing in that? It sounds completely ludicrous. That our calling, our purpose, our mission is going to be to suffer unjustly. And so many of you are like, well, how does that get fleshed out? What do you mean? Like, how can that be our call? How how can that be connected with the gospel? That is Peter's point in these verses. It is the gospel. The fulfillment, listen, the fulfillment of the gospel is watching Christ suffer unjustly. And then his call on all that would come after him to follow suit. And so as we work through tonight, that's the premise. Christ suffered unjustly, and so the call, the mission, the purpose on each of us is to do the same. Because Christ also suffered for you. And the word suffered, the Greek word there, implies not just um, the death of Jesus, but everything building up to it, the scourging, the crown of thorns, being spat on, all the things that were, were involved in the process of his crucifixion because Christ suffered for who? What's the word? For you. Read it. For you. And who is he writing to? He's writing to Christians in Asia Minor. And this is the second you already. For to this you have been called And Christ also suffered for you, leaving you a what? An example. How many of you guys remember when you learned the alphabet? Any of you guys remember? Was it fun? Was it a, like I'm teaching Avery right now, or were, rather, both my wife and I, not just me, right? My wife and I are both teaching Avery the alphabet. And so what we do is like sometimes on on our little whiteboard, because I'm obsessed with whiteboards, anyone else? Obsessed with whiteboards? Aren't they the coolest? You can draw on them and then erase them. It's brilliant, right? But here's the thing with a dry erase board is we write, you know, letters and then we emulate it and sometimes we'll do connect the dots with her. But, but she's learning that. This word example in the Greek, listen to this, is the ancient Greek way of making a map of the Greek alphabet and then giving it to students so that then they could follow along and create the alphabet for themselves. That's the Greek word example here. It's literally emulating the Greek alphabet by seeing it and then making it for yourself. So the image here is Christ left us this map. He showed us himself. Uh, the scripture says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He becomes our every example. Isn't this unbelievable to you? This is why it is so encouraging to read the scriptures and to see the life of Christ because he is our example for everything. He left us this example, this blueprint of what it meant to suffer unjustly so that you might follow in his steps. And I need to point out here, this is not the footprints in the sand kind of thing here, okay? Like, how, right? You guys know this, 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 the cheesy, and, and it's a good poem, but the, you know, what's the picture that often comes with it, you know? It's like some beach scene and, you know, anyway. That's not what we're talking about here. To follow in the steps of Christ better weigh on you tonight before we move any, anywhere else. To follow in His steps is the call. To see Jesus, to be encouraged by His life as Savior and Lord. And, they say, and then say, that is my model. So, 
what's your model right now for life? Is it some other Christian? We're missing discipleship when we see a person as a model. True one-on-one interpersonal discipleship is saying, follow me together as we follow Jesus. He's our model. So what has been your model? Is it a theological class or a, a school or some believer at your institution that seems so great or a person at work that seems like they have it all together or someone here, maybe a life family leader? Maybe they reveal the grace of God and how obedience can be possible through grace, but our model must be Christ. And sometimes those lines get blurred. And so Peter sets the tone by saying our example in the sufferings of Jesus Our example, then, is the sufferings of Christ. Verse 22. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. So following the steps of Christ, Jesus has suffered, and by the way, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Let me pause here and and say this. Do you guys understand who's writing this? Anyone? The one who's now escalating suffering. Listen to this. In Mark chapter 8, Jesus is telling the boys. Let me just read it for you real quick. In Mark chapter 8, Jesus is telling the boys this. And he began to teach that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Listen. And he said this plainly. And Peter, the one that we're studying, took him aside and began to rebuke him. Peter, the one who writes this, is rebuking the Savior. Not a good move, right? Like, I don't know if you've, you know, fancied yourself with that before. Not a wise move. Peter does this, though. No, 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 no. Jesus, this whole suffering thing, man. Like, way overrated, okay? Suffering is bad. We need you to stay here. We need to be in relationship with you. And and for those of you guys that know the story, know know what happens. Uh, But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter. I love that. Jesus rebuking the rebuke, right? But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, uh, which is never a good thing to hear from uh, the Savior. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Now, listen. The one who's now writing about the call on Christians to suffer unjustly is the same guy who wrote, and re- or rather who rebuked Jesus Because Jesus said he had to suffer. Do you get this? So let me say this. What's happened? What's happened in between then and now? He rebukes Jesus. You can't suffer. And now he says we're to suffer just like him. What's happened is that gospel has become so entrenched in his heart and it's become all transforming. The gospel changed Peter. The very person of Christ changed this heart to see what was crazy and suffering and all of a sudden make it a part of the purpose. You see that? That's what the gospel does, guys. So when we keep studying this tonight, understand the context. This is being written by a dude who completely condemns suffering and is now condoning it. Beautiful, because he understands Christ. So verse 22, he committed no sin. Well, how do we know that? I have a lot of conversations with folks who are like, how do you really know? Because we weren't there, we didn't see Jesus, you know, when he was alone in his room. How do we know he didn't get prideful? How do we know that, you know, he didn't lust? How do we know these things? Well, I want to show you a few scriptures, and then we'll turn to some other things. So put up this uh, 2 Corinthians uh, verse 5. 
for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Okay, so we don't just have like this, this understanding from Peter that he didn't sin. Uh, the writer of Corinthians also says that he was without sin. Next verse says this. For we do not have a high priest in Hebrews who is unable to sympathize with, with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are and yet is what? Without sin. Okay, so another affirmation that Christ was sinless, but one more. You know in 1 John chapter 3 that he appeared to take away sins, and in him there is what? No sin. Okay, so we have the words of, of the scriptures, but what else do we have? The words of who? Peter, who was with him, who saw him. Don't you think if there was any reason to question the sinfulness of Jesus, it would have been one of the disciples who at times he even rebuked like we just saw. If you've ever been rebuked by someone, what does that cause in your heart? You want to rebuke as well. You want to lash out as well. What does he do? He doesn't throw Jesus under the bus because he can't. Because Jesus did not sin. So listen, we have all of the, the words after the Gospels. We have one of the guys who was around the Gospels. But we don't just have that. We also have Isaiah chapter 53, which is exactly what Peter's quoting, verse 9. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence. He had not sinned. There was no violence in him. And there was no deceit in his mouth. So you get this. Let, let me paint the picture. Peter, who lived with Jesus, said he was without sin. Isaiah, who wrote about Jesus hundreds of years before he lived, said he was without sin. And the writers after Jesus said he was without sin. So can we agree he was without sin? Okay? A plus B equals Yahtzee there. Okay? Let me do the math, let me do the math for you. But listen. But, but that's, that's still not enough in our understanding. The question is why, right? He was without sin, so what, what does that prove, or what does that mean? Well, you remember the, the sacrificial system in the Old Testament, and we studied that several weeks back. You remember what the sacrifice had to be, right? It had to be faultless. It had to be perfect for its blood to be worth anything. And so when the Scripture says that Jesus becomes the perfect, spotless Passover lamb, the significance of his sinless life was absolutely quintessential. The reason why this is key in our context, if there was ever a time for Jesus to sin, don't you agree it would have been as all of these threats and as all of these beatings, and that would have been, the, at least for you and I, the moment of heightened, and he got through it with no sin. Scripture says, yet he was tempted in every way. Are you with me? So he was without sin. Back to uh, verse 22 for me. He was without sin, and neither was deceit found in his mouth. So all of these things are coming down on Christ, all of these accusations, and no deceit. Nothing is found in his mouth. So for you, um, when people begin to, let me just ask you this in general. When people begin to uh, lash out at you, let's say they accuse you of something, okay? Uh, I, would, I would venture to say, I'm going to take a quick poll in my mind of the audience, that our initial response is defensiveness. 
especially when we have done nothing wrong. Is there anything worse of being accused when we have done nothing wrong? Like, that is one of the worst feelings. What do you mean? Like, I didn't, I didn't say that. I, I didn't do that. I, I didn't participate in that. And that person is so convinced that you did, and you're so no that you didn't because you were there, but you can't get them to believe you. Is, it, is there anything more frustrating than that moment? You see the picture that Peter's painting. No sin, completely innocent, not guilty, and no deceit was found in his mouth. Jesus had to sit there and take false accusation because he was the blameless, faultless Passover lamb. And the call for you is to do the same. At some point for you, this needs to start getting, like, why? What is it about this? And we're going to keep getting there. Verse 23 says this. When he was reviled, which is an interesting word, we'll look at it here in a second, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued, I love this, I love this. What's the word? Entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Okay, first let's look at Isaiah 53, because he's again repeating this. Isaiah 53, uh, verse 7. Isaiah 53, verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he didn't open his mouth. So Peter is working on these assumptions. When he was reviled, what does that word mean? It's loideo is the Greek word. And it literally means to abuse. And not just abuse, but to heap abuse. When he was abused, when the abuse just kept coming, when the accusations were flooding, he made no threat. Back to verse 23, put it up there. He did not revile in return, which is exactly the reaction of the flesh. When you are abused, the flesh will abuse in return. And this for us shows us how opposite the the flesh is from the heart of Christ. And I hope that that's encouraging to you. In the very heat of being called all kinds of things and being spat on, he did not threaten in return, although he had the most reason and the most most gunpowder to threaten back. Are you with me? Of all the people that could threaten, Of all the people that could do some damage, you know what I'm saying? It was him, and yet he did nothing. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Now let's break all this down. This is very troubling to me. As I try to navigate through this life of Christ, there have been many moments where in the church, People have accused me of a lot of things. You'd be surprised maybe, but I was called a lot of, I've been called a lot of things in my past, okay? Uh, I was a young youth pastor, and uh, you know, I've always been a little bit on the edge, right? And and so some people don't sit too well with that, you know? Maybe it was the spiky hair, maybe it was, you know, talking loud. I don't know what it was, but I've been accused of a lot of things. 
And this peace about entrusting myself to him who judges justly has most often been, oh yeah, I'll entrust myself to him who judges their, their God-forsaken souls, right? I'll, I can entrust them to, I can entrust, I, yeah, no problem. This picture, listen, when you entrust those accusers who are coming against you and you entrust yourself and you say, no, 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 God, you're the judge, not me. Do you understand what you're saying? Some will never know him, but some will be bought by the price of the cross. And I have never realized that and never understood that. The same people who have accused me, the same who condemned him, we have to assume that some were bought by the blood of Christ. We see the Roman centurion that seems to be affected by the gospel. Some of these guys were completely changed. And so in the face of accusation, when we put our hands up and say, it's not me to judge, do you know what you're saying? You're not just kicking them to hell. You begin pleading that the blood of Christ saves them too. The very ones who are looking you in the eye and calling you all these grotesque names. Unbelievable. That's why Jesus said, Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. Heap grace on their life. Forgive them. This is the essence of the gospel. The very essence of it. Though hated, he didn't threaten. Though beaten, he didn't return. Though abused, nothing came out of his mouth. And there were many opportunities. Uh, let's begin with one of his own. One of his boys. Judas. How would you have done with one of your boys after three years? You spent three years eating, seeing all the same miracles, hearing all the same teachings, and then all of a sudden this one guy, and he knows it's going to happen obviously, but for us, you get stabbed in the back. Let me ask you this. When you get stabbed in the back, is your initial reaction just to take it? No. So in, in this moment with Judas, what does Jesus do? He says, go ahead and let's get done what needs to be done. He like invites it. And, and, and so then what? So then you have interactions with Caiaphas, the high priest. You have interactions with Pilate. You have abuse that comes of, of, from the Jews who say, free Barabbas. At that moment, if it's you and you had the powers that Christ had, wouldn't you be like, can I get a little fire on the crowd now? You know what I'm saying? Like a little big light right now, just kill them all. Listen, he sits there. He sits there as they're asking for Barabbas to be released. And this is what happens. He's hearing it. He knows he's the king of kings, the lord of lords, and they're saying release Barabbas, and he does nothing. This is so anti our flesh. And at every one of these moments that I read this passage, and I, my heart just starts, I start realizing how intense this call is. You see? For to this you have been called. I keep realizing as I keep working through this passage how intense the call is on our life. Everything in us would do the opposite of this. But then by bought by the blood of Christ and the Spirit enabled, all of a sudden what seems so culturally right becomes ludicrous and the gospel becomes everything. Verse 24 says this, 
He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. So there's a lot here, okay? Let's just start going at it. The first thing is that we see is, is he takes the sin of the world on himself. Now, what does this mean? And for some of you, you're like, okay, hold on a second. Peter said that we're to follow in his steps. So is this part of it too? Like are, are we then to, take, to bear sins on ourselves? The image of what Christ did on the cross is that he became our substitute. The very baseline gospel, the good news of Jesus, is that what you deserved, he stepped in like only he could, as the plan always was, and he bore on himself, like Isaiah 53 says, took on himself, the Greek word for bear is to bring punishment upon himself, He brings that punishment, the wrath of God, the propitiation of God, the theological term. He takes it on himself. He substitutes himself so that you don't have to. What we're called to do is to suffer unjustly, not bear the sins of the world on our shoulders, right? And so to that we say, amen. And so as he takes the sins, and becomes a substitute, what Jesus does for you and for me is he makes way for restoring relationship with God the Father that had been broken and that in you, if left to yourself, was completely incapable of doing. He bore those sins on the tree, and I love the word tree there, right? Not cross, and the Greek word here isn't cross. Uh, It's probably a reference back to Deuteronomy chapter 21. In Deuteronomy chapter 21, Uh, There were those that would be executed on wood when they were suffering for something that was unjust. And so it's probably a reference back to that image. On the tree, on the cross, that that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And here we see the image, right? So suffer unjustly. Here's what he did. He was threatened. He suffered. He bore all of our sins so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Okay. One of those statements seems like a blessing, and one of those statements seems like a curse. What do I mean? Well, the die to sin piece seems pretty awesome. Like, if I can achieve forgiveness and have a restored relationship with God, and my sin killed, the flesh died, like, that is a tremendous blessing. But the holistic picture of the gospel is seen in exactly what Peter experienced. Jesus, you can't suffer to you all must suffer unjustly. What happens? The gospel comes in and transforms every piece of you. Not just killing the flesh and the death and the decay and the depravity, but causing you to live like Jesus. That's what the Spirit does in acceptance of the pursuit of the gospel for our life. Are you with me? We die to that sin and that flesh. It's killed on the cross of Christ so that we might live in righteousness or pursue holiness or follow in his steps. And the picture is when you do that, you will suffer unjustly. 
because the culture and the scripture and the spirit and the flesh are in complete opposition of one another. And so when you live with your sin killed, pursuing righteousness, culture will hate you for it. And many of us have experienced that. And this is the essence of the power of the gospel. Listen, it is holistically transforming. So for many of you, you're like, yeah, yeah, like this Jesus thing, I, I like it, I enjoy it, I, I want a piece of it. But for whatever reason, you, you haven't seen or you haven't experienced that holistic transformation. You haven't seen that you can't suffer to all of us must suffer. So what's happening? What's going on? What, why haven't I seen that complete death? Why hasn't the gospel really transformed all of me? The image is in the verse previous. We entrust our whole being to him as Savior and King. It's all yours. We trust you all with it. Not just these pieces of convenience. We trust you with everything because you are good. Because your words never fail. Because your gospel is true. Because your gospel is real. How ludicrous does it sound to not entrust God with all that we are to him who judges justly? Seems ludicrous. And by his wounds, the scripture says, you have been healed. By the nails that pierced flesh, by the crown of thorns with, with blood dripping down, by the spits, by the scourging and the exposed flesh on his back, by those wounds, Isaiah 53 says, you have been healed. Well, well what's the healing? Is it like of, you know, sore throat, right? Like, well, what's the, which would be awesome in and of itself, right? But, but, but what's the healing? It's a holistic healing. Not physical in essence. This is exactly opposite of what he's saying. You will suffer unjustly for the gospel. So if you think that that healing then is, is that you won't suffer, then you're, you're mistaken. This is the verse that the prosperity gospel never gets. They don't understand those people who say, if you come to Christ, all you do is get. They haven't read this verse. They haven't read this passage. This passage said, with the gospel, you will suffer unjustly. The healing is all of the junk, depravity, sin, flesh that is completely by his blood healed. And should create then a bunch of folks who say, wherever you go in your steps, I desire to follow that. Verse 25 says this. For you were straying, again quoting Isaiah 53, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd. And, and the image uh, re returned here, this gives some like, like 90s, give your life to Jesus 80 times in a month kind of mentality. But this isn't it. Uh, the return, the Greek word here is better turned to. But now you have turned to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. Because of what the gospel has done, all that you know how to do now is turn to the great shepherd and overseer of your soul, completely entrusting, saying, bring on the suffering, because I know in following you it will come. That's what a true heart and life that has just been transformed by the gospel looks like. And so the question for each of us then is, what's the implications? First, the implication is the gospel 
is beautiful. As I kept reading through this over and over and over in the last week, and the elders and I met on Friday, and we were wrestling with this text, the thing that it kept just coming to my mind is just the gospel is beautiful. The God who sits and take, takes accusations falsely when he's undeserving, not guilty, and he takes it and still dies, knowing we're all sinners, and then on the cross says, Father, forgive them. You know what I say? I say, that's a God I desire to follow, you see? Because everything in me would do the exact opposite. And that complete transformation of the gospel is taking me that would do all the opposite things and make me more like him. There's still some ways that some of you are living in opposition of this beautiful gospel. The challenge from Peter is to turn to the overseer of your soul and trust. And trust him. He's in control. He judges justly. No matter who says what, no matter what anyone does, he is completely sovereign and in control. For some of you who have never heard the, the gospel before, this is it. He, Jesus came and he bore the sins that were, that were on us, that were to be paid by us. He was your substitute then, taking them on so that you could have relationship with God. So maybe tonight for some of you who have no idea who Jesus is, and you're like, I've never trusted Jesus, let alone anyone in my life. With relationship with Christ, this one who did the opposite of what you would do, let me tell you this, there is freedom from sin, and then a life that will just pursue something greater, and that's the person of Christ. And so maybe for you tonight, it, it's just, you know what, I'm tired of running. I'm tired of running I'm tired of never being fulfilled. I'm tired of this hamster wheel that I feel like I'm on. Maybe tonight for some of you, it's just time to completely say, I just, I'm done. I got nowhere else to go. I want this holistic gospel transformation. And then there's another category of folks in here. Those of us who are believers, those of us who claim Christianity, I want to challenge you with this specifically tonight. When you say you desire to follow Jesus, when you say that He is your God, that He is your King, what you are communicating, church, is that He is everything and the gospel begins it's transforming work in your heart. The question for us tonight is, is where are you still holding on and trusting the deceit of sin? That is what is anti the scripture. The opposite, the, the, the cursed piece of it is, no, 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 I want the, the death to sin piece, but the live to righteousness, no. What you're doing is you're still believing that sin has something to offer deep down. And so some of you are having emotional affairs with those of the opposite sex in here because you believe deep down that your wife or your husband isn't enough. And so you flirt and you make advances. No one will ever know about it. It will go undercover. No one will ever see. Tonight it's time to repent to the overseer of your soul, the shepherd of your heart, the beautiful gospel that is yours because he bore our sins. 
Some of you in here are still so connected to sexual sin and lust and temptation that you're believing that it has something to offer you even though over and over and over you know it has nothing for you tonight. Return to the overseer of your soul, the shepherd of your heart. Entrust him with everything. Repent now. And others of you, you realize tonight This beautiful gospel, the example of Christ that we're to follow in his steps of, you have no desire to even learn more about it, and yet you claim Christianity. My challenge for you tonight is to search your heart and to entrust the shepherd and overseer of your soul so that you might live humbly, ready to suffer unjustly. What does it look like when a group of people say, bring on the unjust suffering? And it's not that we're looking for it, because that's a whole different teaching. We're not walking around like robots. Will you please unjust suffer me now, so I can be, you know, seen in God's eyes as righteous? No. But we say we're ready. Why? Because we've entrusted. And no matter what comes, no matter what's said, no matter what's done, I got nowhere else to go. The amazing thing is, the holistic picture of the gospel These guys who saw the Christ, who saw the risen Jesus, the the incredible thing was, is is they got it. Like, they saw the risen Christ. They heard heard the, 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 the bread breaking literally. They heard Jesus say, this is my body broken for you. Take and eat. And then for those disciples that ran and feared, you know what they heard? They heard about the scourging and the beatings. And, and some were present there in the courtyard. And you know what they saw? They saw Jesus. Even though they knew he was the king, they were, Jesus, do something. It's what the thief on the cross said. If you're the one, do something. What they didn't realize is he was doing something. And the very thing that they wanted so bad for him to do, be the savior, was exactly what he was doing. Just in the way that a culture could never understand without his death, you see? Don't you love that? And so he said, take and eat and do this in remembrance of me. And then Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords, he held up the cup before his disciples and he said, this is my blood which represents the new covenant. Take and drink and do this in remembrance of me. And the disciples, in hearing on the spilt blood of Jesus, As they took this meal after, it became a remembrance, listen, of unjust suffering. Every time this meal that they shared in it, it became a remembrance of the death of Christ and the resurrection of the Lord. It became a remembrance of unjust suffering. And then 10 of 11 of them were unjustly killed. Innocent. Church, for us tonight, it is time to accept the call, the mission, the purpose. And in doing so, accept the fullness of the transformation of the gospel. Tonight, the the elders, uh, Matt, Jeff, and I, are going to be holding the elements up here. And the point that you as a believer, this meal is for believers, you feel like that your heart is softened, prepared, repentant. I just invite you to come. 
Let's celebrate tonight this meal. Let's repent corporately and ask God to do a work in our hearts to entrust our every being to himself. So let's pray together. We'll prepare to respond. Father God, I ask right now that you would soften the hearts of my friends. We yearn to be a part of the mission and the call. We desire to know you more than anything else. And so I pray, God, that that you would create in us a stirring that would help us trust in you. That in the moments when it's, in the moments when we want to take our situation into our own hands, I pray, God, that you remind us that that we are in your hands, that you are the shepherd, the overseer of our very self. So, God, thank you for your blood. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for the beautiful gospel. Thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you for taking the accusation even though it was undeserved. Thank you, God, that then we could have joy and purpose and life and fulfillment and freedom from the bondage of sin. Thank you, God. Church, respond when you're ready.